Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Kara Fitzgerald is the first ever recipient of the Emerging Leadership Award from the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute in recognition of her work on DNA methylation. She lectures globally on functional medicine, is on the faculty at the Institute for Functional Medicine, and is an IFM certified practitioner And today, she is back on the show to chat about her new book titled Younger You, Reduce Your Biological Age and Live Longer and Better. And yes, that's right. We're going to go on a deep dive into all things methylation and homocysteine, which are near and dear to my heart. Kara, welcome back. Absolutely. It's just, it's great to be with you. And I always enjoy our conversations. In fact, you know, just as you and I were talking about, you've, you know, sparked a thought with me on a number of occasions to, you know, dig a little deeper into the research from, you know, those interesting angles that you bring forward. So glad to be back here and do some more digging. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And I'm so excited to talk with you about your new book, Younger You, because the big meaty topic in the book is methylation. Mm -hmm. which is near and dear to my heart. Our listeners are probably tired of the story, but I have a problem methylating. I am the MTHFR gene, double C677T, a sky-high homocysteine, brought it down through supplementation and it's it's healthy level now. But at any rate, bringing it back to methylation, you say methylation is the key to aging. And so obviously I picked up this book. I'm like, whoa, 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 I'm good. All my markers are good. I got to get my, my, I I have problem methylating, but like, I feel like I look good. I feel good. The markers are good, but this one I can't get under control. So I'm like, all right, we have to talk about this. So before we get into, to me and, and the genetic freak that I am, although most of the there's a significant portion of the population who does that, the MTHFR gene. You know, you start the book with a, with a pretty big promise, a pretty powerful statement. What if I told you, you could be younger tomorrow than you are today? <laughs> so, you know, what would the answer be? And I say, yes, I think we're all interested if you entered a cocktail party and said, what if I told you, you could be younger tomorrow than you are today? So yes, we're all interested. So at the highest level, how do we all do that? Yeah. So it's, it turns out that aging, which I want to say is the biggest risk factor for all chronic disease. So if we can actually crack the aging nut, if we can actually get biologically younger, we're not going to get chronologically younger, but if we can actually get biologically younger, you know, make our physiology that of somebody, you know, at least a few years younger than who we are now, you know, we stand to change the trajectory of this of of the globe really if we can get a little younger and a little healthier or maybe even a lot younger studies are starting to show that's possible i think the extraordinary thing about our study and i would love to talk to you ad nauseum about how we even came upon this and and we can if you're interested the extraordinary thing about our study that's unique in the published literature at this point in time is that we showed that in 8 weeks time all the studies out there to date are longer and generally much longer, like a year duration or so. In eight weeks time with a diet and lifestyle intervention, with a doable diet and lifestyle intervention, I might add, we reversed the biological age of our participants as compared to the control group by over three years. Yeah, it's it's just, it's pushing us into really kind of the next generation sort of stratosphere of where medicine 
And our medicine, functional medicine in particular, is going to be putting attention and how we're going to be shaping research. People are going to want to be including measuring biological age. Should I tell you about it? Like how we did it? Or- yeah, yeah, please do. So the way that we measure biological age is by DNA methylation. We've, we're methylating all over the body and all of our cells all of the time. You know, you're familiar with it, you know, metabolizing our estrogen or, you know, helping us to make dopamine or, you know, adrenaline, et cetera, et cetera, you know, getting rid of toxins. Well, an exquisitely important, you know, less appreciated role for methylation is in regulating gene expression, which genes are on and which genes are off. And there's a handful of different ways that we do this in the level of our genetics, but arguably the certainly the best researched, best studied, and arguably the most important is DNA methylation. And so there's these DNA methyl transferase enzymes that literally put that little methyl group, the carbon with three hydrogens, down on promoter regions of genes. That is the region of the gene that will allow it to be turned on or off. When you've got a lot of methyl groups, just in science, they're always denoted by as, as looking like red lollipops. So you'll see this double-stranded DNA if you can kind of visualize that. And you'll see a bunch of red lollipops in one little area. That's, you know, the promoter region being hypermethylated. And therefore, that gene can't be turned on. Those methyl groups just get in the way from transcription happening. But those methyl groups can either be inhibited from being put on or they can actually be plucked off by a family of enzymes called 1011 translocation enzymes. So we can intentionally remove them using enzymes or we can also intentionally inhibit them. Actually, toxins can get in there and and inhibit with them. There's all sorts of things that we can get in there with and gunk up the works. So it turns out that as we age, there's a predictable pattern of havoc that's wreaked on epigenetics, on DNA expression, on DNA methylation in particular. So we can really accurately predict somebody's chronological age by looking at DNA methylation patterns. We can also predict their, you know, morbidity and mortality, like time to death, looking at looking at DNA methylation patterns. And we can actually do it across the course of a life. You can even, you can look in utero at DNA methylation patterns and you'll see that the, you know, the embryo has, is negative. (laughs) It hasn't been born yet. So its patterns would put it chronologically at a negative number. And then in early childhood, we're actually developing really rapidly as we're supposed to. I have a toddler now and she's just gaining new skills by the second. And so she's aging actually really fast. She's supposed to be. And then move on through life and things things start to change. Menopause comes in or, or we hit, you know, adolescence and sexual maturation and then menopause and then aging. And what's extraordinary about the aging journey is that the imbalances that occur appear to be pretty predictable and... I mean, it's it, it, the the new thinking in science is that aging itself might be a sort of programmed event, you know, in directed by DNA methylation. And so then the rationale is if you go in there and really optimize DNA methylation, stepping out of the larger methylation conversation, but just really narrowing in on DNA methylation you know, can you reverse biological age? And we set out to answer that. And our, our findings extraordinarily were that, yes, we could in, in, in a short order of time. And we'll continue to research it and, and tweak our intervention and maybe do it longer, et cetera, et cetera. But let me just take a pause there and see what your thoughts are. 
in terms of you keep on coming back to methylation and methylation being key in the aging process. I used to be under the impression I'm, I'm, I'm not after reading your book is that homocysteine was the way, you know, if you do not, if you did not properly methylate on one hand, your homocysteine would be elevated, elevated would be greater than 15. Ideally you want it under 10 and then, or you're not properly methylating it increases significantly or it's exceptionally low. And so I was always under the impression that, that was the methylation score, if you will. And if you mm -hmm. had the MTHFR gene, which, you know, was it half the population does, you, you might be more prone to a methylation issue. And if you had specifically the C677T gene, which I do twice, if the double gene, like you're probably even more problematic. And I've told the story a million times. Mine was 63. I got it down to 12 through supplementation. And now I'm just stuck in this range. And I'm like, all right, it is what it is. I don't think anyone, you know, I was joking before the show. It's like, all right, we could all aim to get every, you know, marker, every lab result perfect. And then, you know, we'll walk out and get hit by a bus. You know, right, it just, right. <laughs> so, so with that said, how do we know other than how do we know where we stand in terms of how we're methylating and, yeah. and if we're doing so in a way that's you would deem to be healthy and beneficial for health span longevity? I've got a few things to say on it. I think that, I think that those of us in this field have been very, just you know, there's a bunch of bright human beings who are drawn to integrative medicine and we've studied biochemistry and, you know, it's, everybody knows the methylation cycle, you know, and the transsulfuration cycle, you know, that homocysteine can be shunted into glutathione synthesis. It's kind of extraordinary how much we've learned. And a lot of us have gotten our genetics. And, you know, the promise was that if we address our genes, if we address the methylation cycle, that we could really you know, change our health trajectory in a rather extraordinary way. I was very buoyed up about this possibility back when I was in the lab, you know, I mean, almost 20 years ago now, but when we first started to look at single nucleotide polymorphisms and, and methylation uh, cycle intermediates and so forth. And I, I got in there and, and played with it for a long time. It didn't bear out sort of the promise for 99% of the folks I've worked with as, you know, as we anticipated, uh, there had to be something more. And I think, so I do think considering the methylation cycle is important. There's no doubt about it. I think considering MTHFR does have its place and make sure I talk about MTHFR and aging because in case I miss it. So I, I do think there's some importance, but I think we've been a little bit myopic in how we think about methylation by placing so much importance on that cycle and so much importance in the potential for, you know, genetic variants. When, if you, zooming out and thinking about genetic regulation and methylation there, you'll see that there are far more players in the pond. You know, it's not limited to B vitamins and some minerals and so forth. It's, yeah, we need a robust methyl donor intake and arguably in a food matrix for things for reasons we can talk about but we also need to direct the behavior of these methyl groups so we need to bathe ourselves in methyl groups as you know but we also we don't want them to just 
we don't want to just push methylation forward. We want to give information for where they go. And that was a massive aha for me in doing this research, realizing that polyphenols, you know, polyphenols that we've been consuming that as humans, you know, time immemorial, like curcumin or green tea or rosemary or shiitake mushrooms. It's just, you know, on and on the colorful, you know, polyphenol, the sort of the dark matter it's sometimes referred to of nutrition because it's not a vitamin or, or mineral. It's, you know, the regulatory stuff. And, and anyway, I could go on and on about it. It turns out that in us, these exquisite compounds direct methylation traffic. And so you want an abundance of methyl donors, but you want it with traffic directors with these, we're calling them methylation adaptogens, but I'm actually just describing both of them as epinutrients. They're epigenetically active. So there's this dietary portion. And I'm telling you, I think one of the reasons, I actually think a really big reason that we made a difference in eight weeks time is because we very intentionally bathed the body in these in a high amount of epinutrients. When you look at other studies that like incorporating the Mediterranean diet or just looking at healthy eating patterns like DASH and a healthy standard American diet, whatever that is. But when you look at studies where they were analyzing that in relation to biological age, there is a benefit shown, which is fabulous, but it, you know, it's very modest in, compared to what we did going right after DNA methylation. And I want to say it's more than just diet. Exercise influences methylation, you know, as potent as a methyl donor, as potent as a methylation adaptogen, adequate sleep, you know, stress management, some intentional stress management practice influences methylation. And I don't think we've appreciated that, a healthy microbiome and, you know, uh, just kind of an on. So one of the other things we did was really zoom the lens way out and embrace variables or signal molecules that influence methylation from a, a far broader perspective. Well, let's go there because you break it into a, a couple different groups. In the book, you say methyl donors plus DNA methylation adaptogens plus lifestyle, which you've touched on all of these kind of briefly just now equals a younger you. So if we start with, let's start with methyl donors, talk about, you know, what we can do there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's the classic foods people are probably aware of. A lot of leafy greens as you know, as really as much as you're willing to consume. Our program recommends about seven cups of veggies in total. So not just leafy greens, but cruciferous. Seven cups daily. Yeah. If you can do it, about seven cups. So methyl, staying on the methyl donor track here, seeds, pumpkin seeds, sunflower seeds, nuts, but seeds are more nutrient dense as far as methyl donors. Beets, you know, doing a couple of beets daily. You don't have to go crazy with the beets. I know they're pretty sweet. And for people with blood sugar sensitivities like me, you know, I, I need to be mindful about overdoing it. But beets are loaded with betaine. And as you know, that's a methyl donor. Eggs, you know, we want to be eating five to 10 eggs a week. So we don't want to shirk away from eggs. We're not going crazy. You don't have to have eggs every day, but you want to be getting enough of that all important choline, which is another important uh, methyl donor. Liver, it, you know, a, a few days a week, if you can either cook liver and, and eat it and enjoy it, which the participants in our study did, actually, they developed some pretty good recipes. One guy called called them the sort of like the alternative chicken nugget. He 
came up with this sort of paleo <laughs> way to prepare, prepare them. Or if you're like me and you're not cooking liver, there are very exquisitely clean source liver caps that you can get like New yes. Zealand liver. And, and that's what I'm doing. It's just easier. And I liver is an extraordinarily important food matrix. It's a multivitamin in you know, in a food. And it's what we used before we synthesized B vitamins, you were prescribed liver. Maybe you were given liver injections if you had pernicious anemia or, you know, a B12 neuropathy or something like that. I mean, it was our go-to. I think the whole food matrix has so, I mean, I don't think, I know there's so much more information surrounding that nutrient. It's just smarter for us to give that whole food package that and and multiple foods like you would eat in a salad that complex sort of bite of information is extraordinary and i think that it's a a, a potentially very important director of gene expression traffic and particularly dna methylation so going through all the foods you, you go through the book you have you know a great yes list a great no list if you will you know there there weren't many surprises, you know, basically whole foods, plant-based, avoiding processed carbs, avoiding sugars. You do call out uh, you know, monk fruit, which I love, works well for me as a sweetener to, to enjoy, it, you know, the ones that stuck out. But this isn't, I guess, surprising because a lot of people have, you know, feelings around lectins, you know, bananas, peanuts. The, I was like, okay, not surprising. Yeah, but I want to say that that was a criti the two big criticisms or questions that I was asked after the study came out was, you know, why no beans and why aren't women in the study? Maybe not in that order. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of beans and legumes. I think that yes. we know long-lived individuals are loading up on beans. People who are alive now and just doing very well, healthful individuals now are eating a lot of beans and legumes. So we introduced them in the that when you transition onto the everyday program, the maintenance program, you know, you're back consuming beans. If you're a vegan and you're doing this, then we want you to be consuming beans. The, we just, you just need to be mindful. So we were really wanting it to be, to minimize glycemic cycling. So we wanted it to be lower carb and beans can for some myself included, just turn my blood sugar up a little bit more. So just for this period of time, this eight-week period, you don't have to adopt this as a permanent lifestyle by any stretch. You're off of things that might nudge blood sugar negatively. And yeah, certainly a, a subset of individuals will have you know, gas and bloating with bean consumption and even smaller subset, a really small subset, maybe lectin sensitive. So right. for those reasons, we, um, you know, we pulled the legumes out or the lectin. It's a low lectin diet. There's some intermittent fasting. I mean, we think we got our participants into ketosis just because their triglycerides dropped pretty considerably, but there's, you know, they have a modest exercise prescription and so forth. So we were kind of hedging our bet more towards that direction than, you know, making a commentary on, on lectins. Right. Right. I eat beans. I love beans, but for me to minimize the, the blood sugar spike, I'll always, you know, have an avocado with my beans, with like some yep. olive oil and that's it. I'm good. good. I agree. I, I think everyone's over, you know, look for some people of serious autoimmune lectins are the answer, removing lectins are the answer. But for most, you know, I, I think there is consensus that, you know, People who consume a lot of beans are some of the healthiest people in the world. So 
moving on to like the food's not surprised essentially it's a plant pretty close to a plant-based keto diet with some healthy meats but there's not you know other than liver i'm I'm like you i just can't do liver like and i'm someone who has an affinity for me like there's nothing like you know a great grass-fed burger or you know pasture raised pork ribs i don't do them all the time because heart disease runs in my family but I do them every once in a while and it's amazing, but I just can't do liver. No. But it's plant, essentially plant-based keto. If I were yes. to summarize. Wait, it is, but I re- it, it is, but I have to underline and underscore big time that it's designed for methyl donors and methylation adaptogens in a very intentional way. So if somebody were to say, I'm going to pick up, you know, Joe's book on a plant-based keto, I you know, we certainly wouldn't promise the same outcome. Yeah, because they're not saying load up on beets. But for you, you are. I take a beet powder, by the way. So in terms of, so you got your methyl donors, and then you talked about this briefly. If you could talk a little bit more about DNA methylation adaptogens. Yeah, they're just these really... So again, it's the polyphenol. It's the family of polyphenols. I, by the way, I have my, I have the the, a galley copy here of the book. And um, we just have, if for people who are drawn to this book, one of the coolest features is there's a nutrient appendix, unlike any other. And it's, I don't know, a good 30 pages long. And the yes. bulk of this nutrient, because <laughs> it's a huge reference. It's not your, it's not your standard nutrient appendix. It is looking at epinutrients as a broad category. So there's a massive section on DNA methylation adaptogens, and then there's the methyl donor section, and then methylation adapt, those, the, the enzymes I brought up earlier, the 1011 translocation enzymes, the ones that actively remove methyl groups, there's a whole section on how to support that those in a food-based way. So uh, methylation adaptogens, most of them are polyphenols. They direct traffic. They seem to have primarily an inhibitory effect on DNA methyltransferase, but it seems like, and most of the studies are in cell studies or they're animal. So, you know, human studies, ours is, you know, one of the earlier ones looking at this particular question. But when you look at the animal and cell studies, they seem to be pretty specifically going after genes that have been shut off and are promoting a disease because they're shut off. Most classically, we're looking at tumor suppressor genes. In Cancer, we actually started the DNA methylation investigation in our clinic because I was reading the literature on cancer epigenetics. The tumor microenvironment very efficiently hijacks the epigenetic machinery, so hijacks those enzymes and takes over our gene expression. It's crazy. So a tumor microenvironment will shut down genes we want on, protective genes, and turn on genes that promote disease. So classically, cancer shuts down tumor suppressor genes, shuts down those all important good guy genes that surveil us and keep us cancer free. Cool. Actually, let me just say one thing about this. When you look at cancer as an entity and you look at the changes that happen in DNA methylation, you actually see that pattern of dysregulation is happening in all the chronic diseases and aging itself. So in aging, and this is why it's the biggest risk factor for chronic disease, for example, the tumor suppressor genes are hypermethylated and shut off. So our cancer surveillance system is shut down in aging itself. 
So the literature looking at tumor suppressor re-expression and polyphenols is just really kind of cool and beautiful. And there's a whole, actually, so in addition to this appendix that breaks out a lot of these polyphenol compounds, there's another table looking at tumor suppressor genes and the polyphenols that have been shown to re-express them. So we know EGCG, Equal, Genistein, we know anthocyanin, methane elagic acid, curcumin. So these are the reasons we're eating blueberries or strawberries or turmeric or cocoa or coffee even, you know, garlic, ginger, you know, what else? You mentioned curcumin and ginger. Those, those yeah. are two great ones, which, which I love. I'm curious when you talk about consumption, you know, when, when you mentioned dark leafy greens, you're seven, seven cups a day, which is significant. And so I'll just take curcumin and ginger. How much do we need to consume to get yeah. the benefit? In our study, we just recommended like a simple half teaspoon of okay. curcumin. And we didn't even put, we don't, we didn't put the uh, recommendation in ginger. So we want you to do in the foundational study, um, sort of the targets that we want you to hit, you know, include a couple cups of green tea a little bit of turmeric every day, the vegetables, the beet requirements, the weekly liver and egg requirements, and some seeds. I mean, it's really relatively basic. That's the core targets that you need to hit. That's not going to meet most of our caloric requirement. So then you're going right. to layer in other foods that, you're, that, are le that are legal. And in that case, you can turn to the nutrient appendix and just dig in, you know, with these beautiful additional foods. So just liver again, you know, you mentioned, I mentioned, we, we both don't eat liver. Yeah. And I think uh, yeah. I'm going to guess that the majority of our listeners probably don't eat liver. And so if I'm going to go out, this is an area, look, food is medicine. And, and that's our point of view. You know, always start with food first. And if food doesn't work, you need to supplement. Supplements can yeah. be, you know, big believer in supplement, but start with food first. So like for liver specifically, if, if you're just shaking your head saying, "There's I can't do it, what should you look for? I'm curious in terms of what you look for in a, a beef liver supplement in terms of dosage, in, in terms of frequency. And I'm curious, like, is there a specific brand you like that does a good job? Yeah, what am I using? There are a handful, I, and I we sussed them out and researched them pretty thoroughly. And we've got a resource section in the back of the book. I'm taking, is it Ancestral? liver i mean i should see it it's a news it's a clean new zealand product i take the one periodically from allergy research group you know that's interesting that you're taking that i looked at it and i think it's a pretty cool product but it's not you want it they modify their product a little bit more i don't i didn't include it in our references i okay. think for that reason and i would have to look back at it and see why because i do think allergy research is a great company and so this isn't a negative on them but you just want freeze dried non defatted liver nothing else no no fuss no muss in terms of dosage and frequency is it a daily is it cuz is it once a week yeah and so if you Ideally, you're doing about maybe four to six caps per day, and that will, at least in this product and the product that we cite in our resource section, three ounces of, you know, liver per week. So you could do it as a daily distribution. You don't have to. You could take more 
less times per week. But I just I'm in the habit of just grabbing six in the morning and, you know, I can do fine with them. They don't upset my stomach. I mean, it's a micro amount of liver, like six little capsules. It's like a bite of liver. Right. And which brand is this again? Sorry. It's Ancestral. I'm so sorry. I can see it over there. Oh, good. We'll we'll put it. We'll put it in the show notes. Put it in the link. Yeah, we'll put in the show notes. Uh, So in terms of we'll just we're talking about supplements anyway. I'll segue to supplements. So, you know, look, supplements are personalized, as I mentioned. You know, for me, I supplement. uh, I take lots of supplements. We have our own supplement line. I love supplements and they've helped me tremendously with, with my homocysteine. And so you know, without going on the rabbit hole, I do think they're personalized. And I know you agree, but you also, we, we agree on this. You go on the book, you say, you know, look, there are certain supplements that it's safe to say that pretty much everyone can benefit from. So can you walk through some of those supplements? You know, I, you had an omega D just mm-hmm. talk a little bit about like some of the mm-hmm. ones that like pretty safe to say everyone. All, all of us are going to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in our study, we used a probiotic. We used specifically lactobacillus plantarum. The reason that we did, and we talk about species, genus and species that you could use, the Lactobacillus plantarum, along with bifido, a handful of bifidotypes, may support the microbiome in making its own natural folate. And so it's another nice source of methyl donors. You can get, you know, a good healthy gut is going to be making a lot of those vitamins for us. And so we had people use lactobacillus plantarum. And of course, a good healthy gut is essential for many other reasons, which I know your listeners know, like absorption and biotransformation of our food and also in epigenetic regulation, including DNA methylation. I think our gut microbiome plays a really important role. So for many reasons, good gut is essential. The other thing that we used in our study you know, just again, talking about these DNA methylation adaptogens is a greens powder, additional polyphenol information, just an organic greens powder. We used metagenics in our study, phytoganics, but we make additional recommendations in the book. So you're not beholden to use the products we did. Although, you know, I could see that people might be interested in that, but I think any good quality organic greens powder is good. It's just an additional, you know, bump. Yet, all of us are deficient in omega-3. So we want people eating adequate amounts of omega-3 foods, be them vegetarian sources like flax and chia or, you know, nice fatty, good quality fatty fish. But even still, myself included, as, as much salmon as I eat in a given week, I still need more and as much chia as I eat, I still need more. So I always take an omega-3, a good high potency omega-3. Vitamin D. Yeah, we're all deficient. It's 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 actually crazy. <laughs> and I don't know why. It's, it seems almost, well, certainly in my patient population and myself, it's pretty hard for me to keep my D up. I mean, I'm currently taking 10,000 IU, which is more than I ever thought that I would need. And my last measurement was 50. So I think vitamin D is decent. What else did I cover? We do, we actually did a broad sweep in supplements. If you're vegetarian or vegan and you need it, if you're, you know, you want to be taking some iron, you know, vitamin C is decent. What else? Zinc, a lot of us need. Magnesium is important. I talked about melatonin if you need support with sleep, but melatonin is also its own anti-aging and antioxidant molecule for a variety of reasons. I talked about specific pro-resolving lipid mediators as really interesting and important molecules that come from omega-3s. Do you guys, are you familiar with SPMs? Have you been, are you, do you have a a supplement 
of SBMs or are you thinking about them or talking about them at all? Well, let's talk about them right now. But before we go there, I do think, you know, you mentioned we have an organic greens, a D3 and an omega-3 I think you'll love. So after this, Good. I'll get your address and I'll send them to you. Because okay, cool. actually you our, have a probiotic, our, I'm sure. We do different strains because it's not geared for the genetic freak like me. It's designed for bloating, but you'll appreciate them as our audience knows. We have a, a phenomenal PhD RD on staff, Ashley, who actually used to be a formulator at Metagenics. Oh, cool. So you will love these formulas. We'll, yes. we'll offline about it. But Good. so let's talk. Yeah. So let's go there. We're talking about SPMs. Yes. SPMs. Okay. Or pro-resolving pro -resolving lipid mediators. Yeah. So omega-3 fatty acids, actually omega-3 and omega-6, the ones that are, that can produce a cosinoid. So the ones that can be broken down into a into derivative molecules, secondary metabolites are ridiculously important. We know eicosanoids because we know omega-3 produces anti-inflammatory eicosanoids, you know, EPA and DHA, and then we know that arachidonic acid is broken down into the most potent pro-inflammatory eicosanoids, prostaglandins, um, and leukotrienes. So th these are the reasons that we're taking a bunch of fish oil. A lot of us sort of have a rudimentary understanding around these two things. You don't want a lot of omega-6s because of the potential pro-inflammatory push. You don't want a lot of the omega-3s, or you do want a lot of the omega-3s because of the anti-inflammatory push. And that's kind of the extent of our understanding. Well, just moving like gangbusters in this arena, and we're learning that there are, you know, hundreds of these derivative compounds, some just being characterized that do really important stuff like uh, DH, DHA, pro-resolving lipid mediators, work in the brain. I mean, we think about DHA for brain all of the time. Well, it turns out there's these compounds, they're called neuroprotectins, and they really protect brain function, brain development in, 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 in utero during pregnancy or, or in infancy. They also protect the brain after traumatic injury. You might have uh, be familiar with some of the studies where they use massive amounts of omega-3s, and it's suspected that it's the DHA protecting brain. EPA has, you know, its own massive cascade of these secondary compounds that are doing really badass stuff, quite frankly. They're resolving inflammation. So, in, you know what? Arachidonic acid actually produces some good guy compounds as well. So the name of these are pro-resolving lipid mediators. And the thinking among scientists kind of calling these molecules out and studying them is that inflammation is a failure to resolve. Like the inflammation, chronic inflammation con continues uncontrolled because we don't have enough of these resolving lipid mediators shutting it down. And that's basically what they do. There's tissue spe specificity, like I talked about neuroprotectants in the brain, but they get in there, you know, you take your omega-3s that are housed in the lipid membrane in our cells, you break them down into these resolving lipid mediators and they stop inflammation. So it's a hugely important reason we want to be ingesting enough of these guys. Um, and you can actually take them now, they've been stabilized and you actually can take these pro-resolving lipid mediators directly. You don't take them instead of your omega-3s. You still want your membrane packed with omega-3s, but you can take them if you've got an inflammatory event, like if you've been sick or, you know, if you've got an auto an inflammatory autoimmune condition or, you know, whatever. For, for the myriad reasons we've been, become inflamed, you could certainly use them. And I want to say one other thing, because this is, this is a topic near and dear to me. <laughs> 
Uh, some of us don't make pro-resolving mediators very well at all. People who've got diabetes, for example, some of us don't absorb them as well. And so there can be a reason early in treatment, like if you're just turning the corner on making really important lifestyle changes where you use these for a while. I'm just kind of bullish on them being a smart nutrient. And I take them daily along with my omega-3s and along with eating, you know, a lot of fatty fish and chia and flax. So we've talked about methyl donors. We've talked about DNA methylation adaptogens. Let's segue to lifestyle, specifically exercise. A lot of different opinions on what is the best. You know, I've joked. It's, it's, it's an old joke. People have heard it before, but the, I would say the best exercise is the one you actually do. Right. That's exactly right. It's not a joke. <laughs> but from your point of view, if we're exercising for methylation, yeah, what's the best exercise there? What should we be focused on? Well, again, you just want to be doing it, Jason. You're absolutely right. What's the habit that you're going to keep doing? Our study was such a modest prescription, 30 minutes, five days a week at a perceived exertion of 60 to 80%. So you can do whatever thing that you want to do for that 30 minutes minimum. You can go longer and we want you to go longer as long as you're at 60% perceived exertion you know, it's a little bit harder to talk. You're probably sweating a little bit. And then at 80, you're still able to talk, but it's harder. You know, you're moving up there towards max. So we have a little table in the book of how to determine that. And you can do whatever the heck you want, be it walking or riding your bike, you can clean your house. You know, the guys in our study, a number of them started there. They live in Portland, which is a real pedestrian friendly place that, you know, at least, at least two, maybe three of them started to walk back and forth to work, which was an awesome habit. And, you know, or walk your dog or whatever. You know, you can go to the gym and work out if you want to as well. We wanted it to be modest. So I think that measuring biological age will be something that we're able to do with a high degree of frequency. And I think, you know, ideally we even have it in some wearable device in, in the not so distant future. I mean, we want it to be accurate. So if there's any wearable claiming bioage measurement, run run. It's only just recently left the research setting. So it's still evolving and it's pretty involved to measure biological age. But, it's, you know, exercise itself is very helpful in reducing biological age. Under exercising is going to have negative fallout. Over exercising, likewise, might push biological age forward. But my overexercise is not your overexercise. So when you're asking me the, the, the entry into this conversation is what's the definitive answer? And the, and the definitive answer is that it's individual, well, that it's A, what are you going to do and be consistent, and B, that it's individualized, and that there is some suggestion. We know unequivocally if you don't exercise, you're increasing your risk for disease, period. I mean, that's so strong, that data. And there's also suggestion that if you push it too hard, you're risking. You're an athlete, and I was a competitive cyclist when I was in medical school. At the end of every season, I got sick. You know, I mean, we know classically you're like immunosuppressed when you're really burning the exercise candle at both ends. So you probably don't want to do that all the time. And some research does suggest that that can be pro-aging. So what's right for you? You know, this bio-age technology, as it's more and more available, we'll be able to determine what's right for us. The literature suggests, well, we wanted ours to be doable and we wanted people to stick with it, importantly. But I think the data on high-intensity interval training is pretty strong. The data on 
you know, resistance training is pretty strong. So let me actually, I want to say one more thing because it's really interesting. Exercise, we were talking, I was talking about um, tumor suppressor genes getting hypermethylated in cancer and in aging. So our ability to shut cancer down, we lose that as we age. Polyphenols turn those genes back on and take care of us. Exercise acts just like a polyphenol. I mean, it's just so cool. It helps re-expression of tumor suppressor genes. This is one of the reasons we know exercise is potently anti-cancer. In fact, there was a study that just came out maybe in the last month or so saying that it's epigenetic. All the benefits of exercise are driven via epigenetics. So the more we understand benefits, we can sort of zero in and we see gene regulation plays a big role in why things work. So we see there at the end of the line, it's very anti-inflammatory, but that's because it's, you know, turning on anti-inflammatory genes. And then let me just add one more thing to this exercise study because it's just so, well, two more things because it's so interesting. The older we are, the more exercise bang for our buck we got at gene regulation. So if you if your excuse is you're too old, mm-mm. not only are you not too old, you're actually going to get more bang for your buck the older you are if you get out there and move, which I just think is so, so cool. And the other thing, so if you're preconception, if you're you know still going to have kids, your exercise habits can be heritable. You can transfer some of those good habits on your genetics to your offspring. I mean, isn't that, I think those things are so cool. You know, it, it, it's interesting and it, and it sounds like there's a, a bit of a fine line. You need to exercise, you need to push yourself. But if you do too much, that's actually. It might be pro-aging. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's like, it's a little bit of a fine line. You can't do too little, can't do too much. You got to push yourself. It's like everything. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I, I came to that over and over. I mean, we go back to the B vitamin conversation and just taking isolated B vitamins, I would argue is. Well, what would I say? It's the fine line. It's a U-curve. That's what we call it in science. It's a U-curve. Right. So two little B vitamins are a big problem for everything. You know, cancer, birth defects, you know, neuropathies, et cetera, et cetera. Too many. Yeah. Too many. There is some suggestion that they're problematic as well. And the strongest science around that is is looking at cancer. Mm -hmm. So if you're just really squashing yourself with B vitamins, you may, if there's no reason you're doing that, you may want to really rethink it. Right. I think it's a good philosophy for, for everything. Every, I, I, anything that's good for us is poten- you potentially negate the benefits and do harm when you overload. You know, maybe not the best example, but like eating too much spinach can cause kidney stones. Yeah. It contribute to, you know, there, there are yeah, a lot of factors yeah. happening there, but just in general, like you just yeah. have to like anything that's too much in, you know, we talk about orthorexia and getting excessive. Yeah. There are p- potential, you're doing potential harm or, or at the very least negating some of the benefit. I agree. Um, yeah, that's right. You want to mix it up. Yeah. You got to mix it up. And really, you know what, have kind of a rationale for why you might be doing something like think through your supplement protocol periodically. You know, I'm doing this for this and this or this. So we're not getting into 
you know, just habits, you know, like my dad will send me a picture of his supplements, you know, every six months or so, and he has no idea why he's doing things. And hundred <laughs> percent. And you're speaking, you know, I love supplements. We have a supplements business supplements, you know, getting, getting my homocysteine down was potentially life-saving, but it's important to pare it out. You always pare it out. You don't want to get to a place where all of a sudden, oh, wait, I'm taking 40 capsules or whatever. It's ridiculous. So you should always be optimizing. And, you know, ask yourself, do, you know, can I cycle off of this? Can I potentially have a food, you know, or, or do I really need this? How do I feel? And it's just important because I, I get that for some people very quickly, you can just, you know, build a, a cabinet that's just overwhelming. And all of a sudden it's, it's, you know, gets to a place that's not exactly healthy. In closing, I'm curious. You're on top of all the latest and greatest science. And I, I think the biological aging conversation is a conversation that's beginning to happen. And a lot of people are ex excited about how do you see that conversation specific to biological aging moving forward in the next like couple years? Like, what is that going to look like and how yeah. accurate, how, how nascent is it? So like, mm -hmm. it, are we still so early? Is it going to be somewhat mm -hmm. accurate, really accurate? And then where, where's that going in your opinion? The, there is ridiculously interesting science coming out. I want to just point to David Sinclair's lab at Harvard and what his team is doing. So they're using altering DNA methylation and demethylation. They push aging forward in an animal model. So they cause aging. In fact, in one study, they induced an, an age-associated optic neuropathy in mice. They And they restored it via changing DNA methylation and demethylation. So they pushed aging forward and then reversed it, both total aging in an animal model and one specifically related to vision and changed it around via changing DNA methylation. So I think its importance is just being really unearthed now in the aging conversation and under, understanding aging. I think for the radical biogerontologists, I'm a clinician, you know, I'm looking at diet and lifestyle. That's my area of interest. But there are conversations out there, you know, on drug development. There's billions and billions of dollars like Jeff Bezos and just sort of the, you know, the Uber billionaires out in Silicon Valley or probably Uber actually looking at, you know, the drug that's going to change this. It's so crazy. And the, you know, the first person to live to 150 or more is alive today. So they're looking at some wild stuff. But then there's us who are down to earth. And I think, you know, we're, our intervention is totally safe. It's healthful. And it seems to be able to favorably alter epigenetic expression. So it is nascent, but it's real. And I think it's going to grow. And I think we're going to understand it more. And I think we're going to be using it more. I think it will be a important area of investigation for all of us and not just in the research set. And I think that will be soon. A piece of the or a massive barrier is that it's expensive. I mean, when we started our study in 2017 and we ran it in 2018 and 2019, one test was, I think, $1,200 and we got three different tests. So just the testing alone was, you know, almost $4,000. Now you can get that same test that we used in the neighborhood of, to, in, in the research setting of maybe 200 you know, to $400.
But that's still way prohibitive for most of us. So I think as the technology evolves, the price will come down. There's a really cool cancer test called the GRAIL. For anybody interested, we've got a post on it at our website that detects 50 different cancers, and they do that via DNA methylation in blood, so cell-free DNA methylation. If you ever get the Cologuard test, for example, people get the Cologuard these days instead of a colonoscopy, that's looking at DNA methylation. It's here to stay. There's no question about it. No question about it. It's going to evolve and grow more sophisticated, but it's a tool in our toolbox that isn't going anywhere. Fascinating. Kara, thank you so much. You're welcome, Jason. I look forward to our continued conversations.